Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is James Thurber, the University Distinguished Professor of Government and founder and former director of the Center for Congressional and Presidential Studies at American University. He's the author of numerous books and more than 80 articles and chapters on Congress, interest groups and lobbying, campaigns and elections. And he's the author of Congress and Diaspora Politics, The Influence of Ethnic and Foreign Lobbying, and most recently, Campaigns and Elections American Style. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Thurber. Good to be here. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's quite an exodus of members of Congress who are retiring now, uh, both from the Senate and the House. And it could tip the Senate uh, and the House one way or the other. And it seems that a lot of it's to do with the frustration of polarization and paralysis and the toxic partisan nature of politics now on Capitol Hill. But in general, looking at this list, and we can go through the list, James, is it a reflection of the fact that the good people, the traditional sort of sensible people that could work across the aisle are leaving, and that means that the radicals and the bomb throwers have more and more influence? In other words, are, they, are, the, are the crazies driving out the sensible people? Well, there's higher uh, exiting than usual. It's higher than the last three election cycles and higher, really, in the last 30 years is one of the highest times so far is troubling. And I think that the sensible people in the Republican Party are leaving. There's some Democrats leaving also. I think the picture of the Senate is likely to be very difficult for the, for the Democrats. And so... I think there may be even others who are thinking about leaving there. It may it may turn and become Republican. The House of Representatives is is uh, looks pretty competitive. It may flip and become Democratic. And so there's some Republican members there that are upset with their far right. They don't want to go home and pers- persuade their constituents that they're a governing party after the the circus that they went through for weeks. Uh, and the fact that they can't pass a, uh, a, a appropriation bills and CRs, uh, they want out. It's not it's not fun anymore. There's very slim margins of control, so therefore people on the far right in the Republican Party, in particular, can can really control things, and that's what we've seen. Um, by the way, Congress generally has a high turnover, higher than most boards, like for IBM or Apple or others. Let's put that in context. And what does that do? It it brings a, a, a lot of people who are amateurs. They're losing a great deal of expertise. I know a lot of people in America would like to have term limits, but with term limits, you get people coming in that really don't know about how the place works. They don't know the subject matter of the committees that are involved, which is very important. Uh, and so therefore it's troubling. We have a dysfunctional Congress polarized between the parties within the Republican Party and highly competitive between the House and the Senate in terms of policymaking, it doesn't look good after the next election. And it doesn't look good for the Democrats holding on to the Senate uh, because you've got, well, Senator Carper of Democrat, uh, Democrat of Delaware is leaving, but that's a safe Democratic seat, I imagine. Ben Cardin of Maryland is also leaving. That's probably a safe seat. 
Debbie Stabenow, a Democrat of Michigan, she's leaving. I'm not sure how how that would go in terms of whether the Republicans, Republicans could pick up a seat there. Mitt Romney is the Republican that's leaving, but that obviously will be replaced by a Republican. Joe Manchin is leaving uh, in West Virginia, and there's no question that the Republican former governor will pick up that seat. So that doesn't look good for the Democrats, does it? In terms no, it of doesn't. Plus, plus, there are several other seats that are competitive for the Democrats. And, and in reality, the real election in America, in the House of Representatives in particular, because of redistricting, but the real election in America is the primary election. And uh, the invisible primary is how much money people ha- have and how much how much visibility they have, what, how they're doing in the polls. And that's what's going on right now. Many of these people that are leaving, by the way, are running for higher office. So there's there's ambition, people running for higher office. There's uh, frustration and anger uh, and dysfunction in the place. And they're leaving for that. And then others, remember, we have this magnetic field around Washington, D.C. It's called the Beltway. And when people try to leave Washington after they leave Congress, they get sucked right back back in frequently to do what? To become advocates, to become lobbyists. They have a two-year cooling-off period in the Senate, one year in the House. But, you know, this is the show. Nobody really wants to leave, and they can cash in and make a lot of money. Now, none of these people are saying that, but I suspect many of these people who, who say they want to go home and be with the family back, in the states that they come from. I uh, just watch them. Many of them stay in Washington, D.C. So in terms of the House, obviously, with George Santos leaving, the Democrats would probably pick up that seat in Long Island. Representative Dan Kildee, a Democrat of, of uh, Michigan, I don't know whether the Dems could lose that seat. Jennifer Wexon, Democrat of Virginia. Virginia seems to be trending pretty well for Democrats. How do you see the the House uh, yeah. races? Sorry uh, to interrupt you, but especially in Northern Virginia, where Wexton comes from, it's likely to be a Democratic seat. I, it looks pretty good, in my opinion, in the House. There are about 18 members that came from districts where Biden won overwhelmingly, and they're very worried. They're mo- they're so-called moderates, they're very worried about the perception of the party not being able to function and being run by, by and Republicans say this, by a bunch of nuts, that's a quote from a Republican, uh, on the far right, and so they're, they're, they're worried. This is way too early on polls for the presidency, for senators and House members, but I, I would lean towards the House turning Democratic, Senate, Republican, and the... Uh, the presidency is just too close to call. It's way too far out. Lots of things can happen there. But but the bottom line is, it is very likely we have divided party government, meaning a different party in the House, the Senate, and the presidency. And when that happens, very little gets done. Very little is getting done now because it's divided party government. To put it in perspective, when we have unified party government, Obama uh, had a 93% batting average. Presidential sports guard dropped to 38% when he lost the House and the Senate. And it is dropping now in terms of success uh, for Biden for a variety of reasons. And if it continues to be divided party government, we're, we will continue to have problems appropriating. 
con uh, continuing resolutions and not addressing some of the most important issues in America, like the wars that we're, we're involved with indirectly and immigration and the maldistribution of wealth from the very wealthy to to uh, working class and below. These things are not being addressed. They're just being kicked down the uh, down the road. The one thing I worry about is that the House and the Senate will continue to centralize power and not allow, quote, the regular order to occur. In other words, for uh, subcommittees and committees to do their work, to deliberate and come forward with pieces of legislation frequently that are more bipartisan than what hits the floor. If you continue to have this uh, uh, polarization and divided party government, it's going to be very hard for people to govern. So is that to say, James Thurber, that we'll continue to have minority rule? Because it's, that's the bizarre thing about the Congress is that, for example, there's a substantial majority in both the House and the Senate that want to give aid to Ukraine, but it's blocked by uh, by a, a, a fairly virulent minority. That's right. It's really a minority of a minority. It's going on, and it's in the House of Representatives, and it's people on the far right in uh, the Republican Party. Remember that that uh, uh, Speaker Pelosi, when she was Speaker, she had a majority of two, and then a majority of four, and she still got through legislation that the Progressive Caucus, and there were 98 of them during this period, didn't want. And just to tell you a quick little story, she she had the, the, the Progressive Caucus walk out when she was pushing through the mansion bill rather than build back better, a huge compromise with the mansion bill that was going through. And they all said, no, we're not going to vote for it. They went over to an auditorium in the visitor center and started railing on how we can't do this. Pelosi was a member of the Progressive Caucus, never attended, but she walked over there, opened up the door, walked down the aisle. Everybody looked up. She went down, sat in the second row, and all of a sudden the speakers started talking about how important it was to pass this piece of legislation in honor of the speaker. And they went back, they voted, and they they passed it overwhelmingly, even though they only had a four-vote margin. That is different these days. There's no discipline in the Republican Party compared to the discipline that Pelosi had in the uh, Democratic Party. And this new speaker, Mike Johnson, uh, who I, I find quite troubling, given he's a Christian nationalist and totally obsessed with uh, hatred of uh, homosexuals, and he has the craziest ideas about the separation of church and state. And he's also obsessed with abortion. So is he going to be able to get things moving? Well, he also, to add to that, he has stands on uh, uh, gun regulation that goes against a huge majority of Americans that want more regulation. And he doesn't want to give women a, a freedom of choice. Uh, the party that says it's for freedom doesn't want to give women freedom of choice, which plays in unfortunately because of the policy but it plays in to the democrats uh really being able to recruit more people to vote for democrats in the upcoming election he barely got in he is a person who uh, uh if he continues to need the democrats and in this 
in this constitutional system we have, you have to compromise. You have to reach out, especially when you have a slim majority, majority and use Democrats. When he continues to do that, as he just did, he's going to be uh, have great pressure, may, maybe pushed out of the leadership, even though he's a pure conservative part of the far right. He still needs Democratic votes to get something done. And uh, that's going to be very hard for him. Uh, I think it's his time is limited. His power is limited as a result of that. So that means more dysfunction then, right? I mean, are they, are the Republicans prepared to have another circus of voting for a new speaker? It's it creates dysfunction, frustration, gridlock, uh, and then it's a matter of of the Republicans blaming the Democrats for not getting anything done, the Democrats blaming the Republicans and people of the hardcore supporters of uh, of Trump. And many of them are not philosophically conservative Republicans, but they they will go along with with blaming the Democrats for not getting anything done. Uh, the Democrats, on the other hand, um, will... Uh, you know, they'll blame the Republicans and we get back to the same situation. If we don't have an overwhelming majority in either body, we continue to have slim major margins. We've got to cooperate. And if they don't cooperate, we've got gridlock. So just in closing, then, uh, James Thurber, um, we mentioned the likelihood that the Republicans would pick up the Senate and the Democrats would pick up the House, and that leaves the executive branch. And in some polls, Trump is ahead, which is hard to believe, but that's the case. And now, of course, we're learning that Biden is bleeding votes from young people and also from Arab Americans, and particularly in the key state of Michigan. So obviously, it's a long time, it's a year before the election. But what do you think in terms of Biden's fortunes? Well, I think that you have to look at the battleground states. So there are about six battleground states, maybe narrow it down to four. And the latest poll that's scaring all the Democrats is the poll from the New York Times last week that shows Trump ahead uh, in all of those but one state. I, now, the point everybody else is making, pollsters and others, it's way too early uh, to uh, determine what's going to happen and determine from the polls. Uh, as we get closer, we'll know better. It's likely that Trump will get the nomination. It's likely that that uh, Biden will have the nomination. And then it becomes a question of Biden's age and perception of what he's done for young people, for, for minorities, uh, for America, and what he's done in the international scene with NATO and and with Israel and Hamas and Palestinians and Ukraine, um, it's likely that this election will uh, be about enthusiasm, lack of it, uh, and turnout, lack of it. Uh, and if that happens on the Democratic side, uh, Trump will be our next president. Now, that's that's worrisome if you believe in a in the Constitution and you believe in a, in a democracy and not. Uh, electing a uh, an authoritarian who's promised to do all kinds of really radical things, uh, so it's worrisome. Um, but it's a long time between now 
uh, and the election. Many things will happen. Uh, you, know, you couldn't have predicted the situation in in Israel, the vile slaughtering of Israelis by by Hamas, uh, and what's happened since then. Um, <clears throat> so we'll see. There, hopefully, there will not be other wars. Uh, other things can happen, though, that will influence the election. I'm worried, though. It's when it's too close to call. It's a it's a worry. If somebody doesn't vote for doesn't vote, it's a vote for Trump, in my opinion. If somebody votes for a third party person, and many of them uh, will draw votes from the Democratic Party, it is a vote for Trump. So you have to worry about the turnout question, enthusiasm question. Uh, and whether uh, some third party person will take votes away from Biden in the battleground states. Uh, the national polls are interesting, but the battleground states are what one needs to focus on. Well, James Thurber, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Yeah, thank you, Ian, for having me. And again, I've been speaking with James Thurber, the University Distinguished Professor of Government and a founder and former director of the Center for Congressional and Presidential Studies at American University. He's the author of numerous books and more than 80 articles and chapters on Congress, interest groups and lobbying and campaigns and elections. And is the author of Congress and Diaspora Politics, The Influence of Ethnic and Foreign Lobbying, and most recently, Campaigns and Elections, American Style.